This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Burned by Books, a podcast for bookish fanatics and podcast addicts. I'm your host, Chris Holmes. This week's episode is a special one for a couple of reasons. To begin with, this is my first live interview. It wasn't in person, but that didn't dampen the fun of talking with Lauren Euler, author of Fake Accounts, for a live audience of devotees to Buffalo Street Books, my local bookshop. Lauren was a dream to talk with, smart, funny, insightful into her own work, and I feel very lucky to have been able to ask her some questions about a book I really loved. It is also a special episode because it is the 10th in the life of the podcast. When I started this project in March of 2020, almost exactly a year ago, the idea was to do two episodes— the first with my academic collaborator, the novelist Eleanor Henderson, and the other with the general manager of Buffalo Street Books, Lisa Swayze. If a couple of friends listened, great. If not, I would have fun talking to two friends. I didn't anticipate how hard the technological side of things would be, even for an extremely amateurish setup such as this and how much it would bother me to have to listen to my own voice over and over again in the editing phase of each episode. But I also couldn't have predicted how much each episode would come to mean to me. The writers that I've already known have been as surprising and interesting and absorbing as the writers I have never spoken a single word to prior to our interviews. There have been surprises that stay with me in my mundane every day, like Kevin Wilson's remarkable tenderness and compassion, or swapping rice cooker techniques with Alexandra Chang, or Ellie Eaton sharing my love of the Spanish series La Casa de Papel. As well, there have been remarkable poignancies, such as talking to Alia Trabuco-Zaran the day after Chile approved a rewriting of the National Constitution or learning of how many of Valgina Mort's friends and loved ones had been imprisoned and abused by that Belarusian government. These moments have been meaningful enough to propel my interest in seeking out new guests and new subject matters. Even in the longer stretches between episodes, I'm thinking about a dream list of authors I might have on the show, and I keep getting lucky, and these fabulous people keep saying yes. A year in, and ten episodes under my digital belt, and I can't imagine ever stopping. I owe everything to my listeners, 
many of whom are my friends, and who have gone on to share Burned by Books with their friends. You all are a part of this conversation, and I wouldn't want to do it without you. Thank you. I really hope you enjoy this special live interview with Lauren Euler. You'll find her book recommendations, which we didn't have time for during our recorded conversation, on the podcast website, burnedbybooks.com. Stay tuned for my interview with the poet and essayist Gina Nutt to follow in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, let's get going with my interview with Lauren Euler. Thanks, Oliver. Um, and thanks to Lauren and thanks to Buffalo Street Books, um, which is a place that really is kind of my second home in Ithaca. Uh, and it's, you know, if I'm going to have a, a bio, I think it would be favorite customer of Buffalo Street Books would be my first and, and foremost thing I'd love to be and something I'll strive to be as long as I live in, in Ithaca. And it's really exciting. Um, to be doing an event like this because um, so little uh, that feels special happens um, during this time. And uh, having this chance to have a conversation with someone whose book I really um, loved is feels quite special. So thank you to Oliver and Isabella, and thank you to the general manager of Buffalo Street Books, Lisa Swayze, for this opportunity. So um, before the publication of Fake Accounts, Lauren Euler was already everywhere, even if you didn't know it. An exuberant and at times eviscerating critic, Lauren has spent the last decade doing the impossible, putting the critique back in criticism. In an era besotted with raves and encomia and criticism as blurb producer, readily quoted by the book's author and prepared for social media, Lauren has dared to take some swings at our contemporary cultural totems. I can think of few brave enough to write barn burners taking down the likes of Roxane Gay's Bad Feminism, Sally Rooney's Normal People, Gia Tolentino's Trick Mirror, knowing full well the whirlwind of social media blowback sure to follow. Rather than hit pieces, however, Lauren's style of criticism is relentlessly demanding, reading books according to the terms set by their own authors. The result is beautiful, unyielding readings that take literature very seriously. The quality of her work has led Lauren to jobs and freelance work for Bookslut, Vice, The New Yorker, London Review of Books, and several co-written books with Alyssa Mastromonaco, the much-beloved Obama Deputy Chief of Staff. With this kind of resume, one imagines that Lauren's decision to write a novel on of her own might have come with some self-doubt and, for sure, vulnerability. The resulting work, Fake Accounts, however, is as assured and confident and beautifully written and searing in its vision of the internet age, as one could hope. It is deeply intellectual while being a page-slashing good read. She manages cultural critique while letting her character grow and develop without the veneer of righteousness. It is at times a, dist is 
disturbing, and at others, hilariously funny, including one of my favorite descriptions ever of babies, quote, dead behind the eyes and warm. The plot, vulgarly distilled, concerns a young woman who discovers that her boyfriend maintains a secret social media account that spreads conspiracy theories to a large audience. This hoax is a catalyst to the narrator's move to Berlin, where she undertakes a perverse, if revealing, dissection of the identities we try on for the sake of internet dating and for our relationships in general. Fake accounts might well be called a social media novel with its incursions into workplace, social, and political internet realities. But it is never so in its formal countenance, which is playful and crafted in a way that rejects the blanded out immediacy and gross moralism of the Twitter feed. Most remarkably for a novel about the un unreliability of our social constructions of reality, fake accounts has a lived in feeling, an authenticity of character and interaction that makes for the best of what we hope for a novel will do. Novels have been a lifeline for me during the pandemic, and I'm guessing that if you're here tonight, they have been for you as well. And certain books have been precisely what I needed at particular moments. Kevin Wilson's Nothing to See Here, Brian Washington's Memorial, Raven Leilani's Luster, Ellie Eaton's The Divines, and Fake Accounts has been one of those rafts in the storm. It is my great pleasure to welcome Lauren Euler. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. I've never been introduced. I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be here with you. Um, <laughs> I wanted to start our conversation off, uh, if you would, with just a reading from the beginning to situate us a little bit and give everyone a, a sense of where we're jumping off from in the beginning. Yes, absolutely. And it's very short. Don't worry. Consensus was the world was ending or would begin to end soon, if not by exponential environmental catastrophe, then by some combination of nuclear war, the American two-party system, patriarchy, white supremacy, gentrification, globalization, data breaches, and social media. People looked sad on the subway, in the bars. Decisions were questioned, opinions rearranged. The same grave epiphany was dragged around everywhere. We were transitioning from an only retrospectively easy past to an inarguably more difficult future. We were, it could no longer be denied, unstoppably bad. Although the death of any hope for humanity was surely decades in the making, the result of many intersecting systems described forbiddingly well, it was only that short period between the election of a new president and his holding up a hand to swear to serve the people's interests that made clear what had happened, that we were too late. I didn't believe all this necessarily, though as the news got worse and more bizarre, I wavered. I've always been drawn to pragmatism, just not exactly a natural at it. As my brain says, calm down, my heart says, also weirdly calmly, a paradoxical comfort can be found in drama. It was and still is my official position you were to ask me at a party or something, that the popular turn to fatalism could be attributed to self-aggrandizement and an ignorance of history, history being characterized by the population's quickness to declare apocalypse finally imminent despite its permanently delayed arrival. 
We don't want to die, but we also don't want to do anything challenging, such as what living requires. So the volubility with which certain doom was discussed made a tedious kind of sense. The end of the world would let us have our cake and eat it too. We would have no choice but to die, our, potentially con our potential conveniently unrealizable due to our collapse. Until such time, the idea that everything was totally pointless now was seductive, particularly as a mantra you could take advantage of when it suited you and abandon when life actually started to feel alarming. I myself was soon using it to indulge some of my naughtier impulses, by which I mean that in the first hours of a morning in early January, when the sky was still dark and the government still inevitably hurtling, I decided to snoop through my boyfriend's phone while he was asleep. I never really had the urge to go through another person's things before. After a few disappointing experiences with high school boyfriends' instant message histories, I'd learned that poking around the byproducts of other people's thoughts usually yielded the mundane, the predictable, and the unattractive. Even with men I respected intellectually, I never found myself caring enough to breach their trust. Before Felix, my boyfriends exuded the wholesome, loving, deep-down reliability of hot dads on television shows, despite being, as far as I knew, not hot, nor dads, nor on television. Another way of putting this is that before Felix, I had good taste. But over the year and a half we'd been together, Felix had revealed himself to be completely unrevealing, insisting over and over as I baited and nagged and implored him to tell me his innermost hopes, fears, and childhood-formed biases, either that there was nothing to tell or, conflictingly, that he told me everything already and that it wasn't his fault if I didn't remember. It was humiliating and typical, and per the usual narrative, I assumed he was hiding something, probably other women. That's all I have. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, will you tell us how the novel came about, the germ of it? How did you want to, how did you end up wanting to write a novel so focused on internet culture? Well, I was working uh, for a couple of years at Vice. I was working at a, the women's, the now defunct women's vertical at Vice uh, broadly. And because of that, I, I mean, I think I was probably, I probably was on the internet a lot before. Um, I lived in Berlin and I think I was on Twitter a lot at the time as well, because I was very sort of lonely and, and being a sort of depressed expat. But when I came back to New York and started working at Vice, I just had to watch, I watched the internet, I started watching the internet in a totally different way. And I was fascinated by the things that people were doing there um, and feeling bad about myself for all of the reasons that we all understand quite well <laughs> um, uh, about the, the things that the internet does to us and makes us feel. Um, and I just thought also at the time, there weren't that many novels that incorporated the internet in a sort of live, like, um, the way that it really is, it, it, it's either sort of usually the backdrop or, or like, it's like a lamp or something. It's like, oh, I turned on my phone and, and I received an email and then here's the email. Like it's a letter, you know, um, but it doesn't, it, there weren't a lot of novels that were sort of reflecting the social part of social media. And I really wanted to try and do that. Um, and simultaneously, I was interested in these sorts of people um, that the boyfriend character becomes, uh, that, that we we understand the boyfriend character to be, which are these very sort of charming, um, often charismatic people that you talk to, and then you realize you realize that you are very suspicious of them because they might be lying to you about everything they're saying, and that you can't really get to know them, and you can't really see them clearly. And I thought that those two things worked quite well together because the internet is full of such charming um, but inscrutable figures, I think. 
Yeah, I, I, yes, very much so. Um, and I'm I'm struck by the fact, as you say it, that um, not only do are there not a lot of novels where I feel like it is a substantive question of the book, but also um, it's often just hidden away. There's no reference to being on a computer or touching a phone, which is, I think, our kind of wish fulfillment as writers and readers. We, in a way, want to kind of step away from that thing because it is so consuming. Um, but what I like about fake accounts is you let it be consuming and it leaks out. It's not just that it's, you know, when your narrator is on um, the internet that they are um, kind of consumed with these social identities. It's when they're not, um, when she's not on the internet, it has leaked into all facets of everything um, that she's doing. And while she is quite smart and self-aware, um, you are shining a light on the fact that it is not just a device that is working upon us anymore. It's, it's almost like it's in the air mm -hmm. in some way. So do you, I mean, as you became aware of your own use of it, were you realizing how it was leaking into other aspects of your life that you weren't expecting? Well, I think probably the thing that I noticed first was the weirdness of sort of encountering someone offline that, you know, primarily online. So whether that is through online dating, which is a sort of bizarre experience that I, I, I did that, you know, periodically, um, or when I was writing a lot online and I would sort of meet quote unquote, meet people from the internet and then meet them in real life and not in real life, but in, in, person or I would see people in person that I recognize from the internet but I'd never spoken to online or whatever so you don't really know how to handle those interactions and I think that that sort of dislocation and that feeling of alienation was very interesting to me um, because it's also kind of shameful right like you're not you're not supposed to feel bad about anything that you've done on the internet or anything that you've seen on the internet even though it can be extremely consuming or just like infecting I think if you're spending a lot of time doing anything, it's going, it's going to affect other areas of your life. It's going to affect the way that you think about things. So of course it makes sense if you, if you're sort of inundated with various kinds of social interactions, most of which are, are not pleasant, though some of them are, um, that is going to color the way that you see people and the world. Felix is, um, I guess, unfortunately, even more recognizable to us in the having lived through the the apocalypse of the Trump administration. And I think of this novel as unquestionably of that era. And it's sort of the air that um, is breathed by the characters, even in, in Berlin. It's, it's inescapable. Um, and the discovery that conspiracy theories that are really close to home have big impacts, to my mind, is made all the more ominous by what we witnessed on January 6th and the insurrection driven by those very kinds of appealing, sometimes charming, sometimes um, uh, enticing manner of conspiracy. What was it like to see this novel that you had written kind of well before that become kind of prophetic in the way that the close to home aspect of uh, conspiracy theories happens. I mean, it was strange because when I started writing, I started writing it right after Trump took office. So QAnon didn't exist for several months after that. Um, they posted their first thing on in October of 2017. Mm -hmm. um, and the whole book takes place before QAnon ex existed. So 
I guess, you know, it's, it's, I, I feel what I feel good about is that the, the book, and that's because of the narrator. And that's also because this is how I feel as well is not necessarily compelled by the sort of flashy elements of the conspiracy theories. It's not this sort of like the conspiracy theory as it's as such is not interesting to her. And she, she almost immediately is sort of repeatedly gets bored by having to look at his, at his, his, his meme account that, that she discovers that he has um, uh, because she knows to a certain extent that he doesn't believe it or she has to assume that he doesn't believe it uh, in them. Um, and I think that that was what was interesting to me when I was writing the book was not like, oh, how do they come up with these sort of outlandish tales and how do they convince people? But but rather the like feeling of most of the people who are involved do not could not fully believe it, but why are they doing it and what is the motivation behind it? And how much do they believe it? Um, so when I was watching the Capitol insurrection, it was very bizarre because I think probably there was this week we're dominated, I think, by coronavirus news and Andrew Cuomo. But but last, you know, just last week, people were talking, you know, talking about what what is the nature of these these people's belief like are that why why do they support trump why do they believe in these why were they at the capitol and there are these big fights particularly online in the sort of circles that i run in um about like what does it mean that they're doing this and i think that that is i hope what the the sort of thing that the book is is getting at as well which is it's not about the conspiracy theories it's about why people are participating in them um but also, I think it's sort of it's sort of interesting that a lot of people seem to have just sort of abandoned them and, and this this sort of framework, this like quasi-religious framework uh, of the conspiracy theory and the QAnon in particular. And people have been sort of like disappointed, but then sort of slunk off into the into the internet night, right? Not to to sort of lick their wounds and figure out what went wrong. I'm sure some people still believe in them, but it did turn out that the conspiracy theory was not the point, right? Mm. Yeah, there's this like yawning need mm -hmm. that fulfills. And if it proves to be, you know, Im impossible to fulfill and certainly never, um, you know, soothes, it's not a solve for the, the thing you need um, satisfied. And so you can then move on to what is an infinite, number of conspiracy theories or things to believe in or take on. Um, and it's, yeah, Felix's blasé-ness to all yeah. of it, I think actually would probably be truer to most QAnon um, uh, social, I'm, conspiracy theorists than we would imagine. It's not like a kind of sweaty political ideology that's like going to burst from people's pores as much as it is like the thing at that moment to kind of cover it over. Yeah. And I think too, people are searching for some kind of overlying, they want some kind of structure to guide them. Right. And, and the conspiracy theory makes a lot of sense in that way. And I think too, the narrator of the book is also looking for that in a very different way. Um, and that's what makes her sort of do the things that she does throughout the the novel. I, I see her as sort of being like, well, I could live in New York, but I could also move to Berlin for no reason. It doesn't really matter. I have no sort of governing, you know, over, overarching structure in my life. And I think that that is true of a lot of people now. 
Yeah, and that actually leads to my my next question, which is that one of the things that you know is is disturbing about the way in which you're kind of peeling off these layers of of why we have this need to be involved um, socially with the internet, um, but part of it has to do with. Um, the way in which you see protest and um, solidarity movements as perhaps kind of uh, empty of, of real uh, impactful connection. And in fact, um, your narrator uh, decides after kind of basically being guilted into being part of the Women's March after Trump's election, she says, well, I'm a good person now, um, you know, tongue in cheek, but also, um, you know, a, a wink at what I think is um, is the book is trying to say a little bit about what social media might say is its best endeavor, um, Twitter protests or gatherings around political movements. So did you um, want uh, fake accounts to kind of weigh into that and say even, even the kind of the best endeavor is a little bit marked by this absent center? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's sort of very interesting that's the interesting problem to me that's the ultimate tension right like i think there is a way that you can interpret social media saying well at the end of the day it has produced these movements that are very significant and have a real impact and have material consequences um but from a sort of more more not social because that, and that can have a bunch of meanings in this context, but, but from a more sort of like personal, emotional, um, this, the sort of standpoint that we would look at if we're talking about a novel, uh, it, it does feel often. And I think for many people feel kind of hollow and it feels sort of strange to be in these contexts where people are purporting to have very strong emotions and sort of, and sort of, um, projecting their very strong emotions, but you can tell because of various things that, that they are hollow. Um, but the consequences for not participating in them or for objecting or, or questioning them are so um, just, you know, can seem as if they could be so great. Uh, and I think that that is one of the reasons why I wanted to put, put her, she goes to the women's March in Washington, DC Um in the book and also show like how one might end up there, not because of some, you know, core feeling of, of political about, about political activism, but just because like she's in a yoga class and everybody in the yoga class suddenly is like, I'm not going to be at class next week because I'm going to Washington DC, which <laughs> I'm comfortable saying that is autobiographical. That did happen to me. Um, but, but the Women's March itself is very interesting because it is something that was to totally born on social media and was so popular, I think, due to social media. And when you were there, the way that social media was like sort of flowing in and out of the of the very real, like personal experience was very strange and interesting. So, so she's in the crowd and she's trying to get on her phone, but there's no service because there are so many people there trying to use their phones. Um, but also she's like looking at all the signs, right? And she's like, well, if I can't, I was going to take pictures of the signs, but then I realized I could just look them up online later. And that does, I think, add this sort of inevitable feeling of, you know, <laughs> why, you know, why am I here in the first place, right? Um, and, and that, you know, 
that's a so it can be a hard question to answer if the, if your answer is kind of like I don't really have a good reason <laughs> I don't really have a good reason. Um, yeah, and that that aspect of images that are infinitely available on even from very particular experiences, mm-hmm. so that they are seen so many times, they're kind of denuded of power and and value. Um, that's, I mean, it's both this thing that carried the this powerful transformative moment uh, in the Women's March, but also is the thing about these sort of social media gatherings that are infinitely tweeted and posted and things like that, that robs them a little bit of their historical significance. Yeah. And I don't know if it's, you know, I don't want to say it's all bad, but I think I hope that this comes through in the book, which is that it's like very alienating, even if it is like good, you know, good or bad is not a particularly useful framework for very many things. Uh, it's a very internet-y framework. Um, but well, I think she has a she has an experience that she realizes is important, yes. even as she feels alienated from it. And yes. maybe that's a good description of the internet. You can you can have very important experiences and still feel kind of alienated from them just right. by the nature of its mediation. Yeah, and I think to the sort of I don't know. I people a lot of people have asked me why did I want to write about the internet um, and you know, I really wanted to make the novel not feel like you're on the internet because the internet is so terrible. But I do think that these sort of like uncomfortable and like kind of pathetic experiences of human life are very important to write about in novels. Um, and and yeah. that that is is why I find it so compelling, even though it's, I also find it compelling because of all of the reasons everybody finds it compelling. It's very addictive. Um, but the ability to watch so many people doing things at once is, is incredible. It, it, it definitely is. Um, and to, you know, my shame, I find it infinitely um, appealing to look at all the people of the world conceivably all in one moment. Yes. Um, you know, uh, you and, and Patricia Lockwood uh, had a conversation that was sort of titled the internet novel. Yes. And the idea that this was a genre was both kind of chilling to me, but seemed altogether necessary, given its outsized influence in every aspect of our lives now. Um, but thinking about fake accounts as a possible example of this genre, I'm struck by the need both for novels that dramatize our our particular intimacy with alternative digital selves mm-hmm. and for novels that can provide a different form of language that resists what I would think of as the kind of collapsing of meaning into these punctuated ecstasies of emotion. Um, and, you know, indeed your narrator goes as far as to say, quote, I can't help but feel the books of collected tweets you occasionally see at tables um, on tables at Urban Outfitters would be better as novels or memoirs that contained no tweets. Um, so <laughs> yes. how did you negotiate those two strains of, of the internet novel? Well, I think it quite it helped me a lot at least to have it in this kind of self-aware but but very traditional structure, right? Like the sections are called beginning, middle, and end. Um, and it's it's written in in scenes and whenever I have the character on the internet she's always in scene like there there are not sort of 
disembody there is there is a section that is is mimicking the internet as a, as a kind of parody and there are sort of disembodied anecdotes there but but for the rest of the novel whenever she's on her computer she's like you you're very much aware of her body and in the in the various ways that we we harm our 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 um hands and our spines and everything by using the internet all day every day um and you see the sort of the sky going dark while she's like on her computer and things like that um so in, in a very sort of pragmatic way that's how I tried to navigate it but I also there's so much drama that happens on social media that I really wanted to um convey in the book and it's sort it's banal and sort of a lot of it is very high school-esque um but I do think from reading novels that do not have any internet in them because they take place uh in the 19th century or the 20 you know the 20th century pre-internet um you know most sort of social drama is is pretty petty or or about someone cheating on someone else or someone's you know insulting someone else and, and everybody getting mad and choosing sides. So I don't think actually that a lot of the thing, I think a lot of the things that happen online are, have, are, are just human, human things that have plenty of precedent. And so I wanted to sort of emphasize that in some way. Um, and also as the book goes on in particular, the narrator's actions, she's doing things that would be very easy to do online. So she's making up different personalities that she, she takes on when she goes on OkCupid dates. Um, but I see that as, as a figure for what people are doing online every day, which is making up different personalities or emphasizing certain things or, or, you know, people lie, people lie about really small insignificant things online all the time, um, which is what she ends up doing when she's going on her online dates. That's um, that's one of my favorite sections of, of the book. I'm sure it's a lot of people's favorite sections because it's, it's hysterical. It's got all these sort of like meta narrative, like punctuated moments that remind you how absurd like dating is just in general, like even yeah. remove social media from it, the absurdities of um, kind of concocting oneself to prepare uh, for a date. But that, um, that section where she's assuming personalities based on the 12 signs of the Zodiac. And I love that Aries somehow corresponds to acupuncturist. Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but they, um, during these kind of, they end up being mostly kind of sexless um, dating experiments. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you really get a sense of what this leakage is that you're trying to talk about because, you know, she's not in front of, um, you know, a social media account. She's sitting in front of an actual person and putting on a performance, you know, a performance worthy of the stage. And I don't actually think it's it's too far from the truth of what what dating is. Um, and I don't know if you were you're thinking of it in those terms. Yeah, and I think too, like there's a way that dating, you know, dating, particularly with online dating, I think that um, you you tend to you there's there's always this like narrative of of like oh you show up and the person is completely different from how they are in their profile, and I wanted to make that very very literal, but nobody sort of sort of I think I think my experience doing that, which, which I did it a couple of different times in 20, you know, 2013, 2014. And then again, maybe in 2015, but, 
but um my experience doing that was like nobody actually really cared about anything that you had to say and it was very hard to have a genuine connection because there was this sort of like formulaic like getting to know you stuff um that was very weird and disorienting and and you really wanted it to go well like you really wanted something you I at least wanted like to have a great time like I wanted to meet someone that I really hit it off with and that we never thought about the internet again right and that never happened and I think in, in the book what she probably really wants is for someone to say you're being extremely bizarre what's your problem <laughs> um, but of course nobody ever does um, just as when you're going on these dates like you almost never meet someone who sees you very clearly and sort of like you know you can open up to in an earnest way um there's this really funny and lovely convention um that you have where there's a kind of greek chorus of ex-boyfriends who chime in from time to time as a chorus to kind of act as a reality check a little bit um but i thought one why ex-boyfriends whom i consider to be the least reliable source about have anything having to do with reality mm -hmm. uh, maybe that's the point that they're not really a reality check as much as they're like the thing in your head you can't make go away. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that they vary. I think what's interesting to me about them is that they have that unstable quality that mm -hmm. you don't, you know, you don't know if you should trust them. You, you might have a really solid ex-boyfriend who, who, you know, keeps you in check and you might just have a total mud case who you have to stay, you actually have a good reason to want to stay away from. Um, and I think the reason why people tend you know tend to uh have a horrified reaction to the idea of hanging out with their exes is because they know you in this particular way and they have this sort of volatile relationship to you and you don't know what they're going to do um and if i'm talking to you about my ex-boyfriend like you don't necessarily know if i meet if that was a significant relationship to me or not so there are all these sort of unstable variables that were really interesting to me in the context of this book um, and you know, you have to sort of take them, you have to sort of assess how serious they are. Right. Because when they're popping into the narrative to, to sort of, um, you know, gently criticize the narrator for whatever she's doing, you might at times agree with them or, or you know, you might be more likely to agree with her who's she, and she's sort of like, Oh, shut up. They're always saying things like this. They don't know what they're talking about. Um, but actually they do sort of have a point at times. Um, and also I just thought that they were very, you know, they're very funny. I did think that, um, uh, one critic and I had not, I had not considered this, but one critic said that it was, it was sort of like they were watching her on social media and sort of judging her, which I thought was very interesting. Um, I do think that they sort of know her better, but I guess if you're watching someone that you know really well, or you used to know really well on social media, you might make assumptions about their behavior based on the things that they're posting, even from, you know, a distance of years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're, um, I mean, even in our discussion here, you're almost daring us um, to imagine you um, kind of overlapped directly with the narrator, which is something I, I, we've come to a expect in many ways from contemporary fiction, whether it's auto fiction or just the ways in which the internet means that we kind of believe we can know everything about everybody all the time. Um, and so that when you read something that you like, you, you explore it. Um, and then you find out things that overlay from a writer's life onto a, onto a book, you know, you, you, it did the divided, uh, Berlin, New York city life. You know, you've just said you did 
internet dating that had some elements to this. But I also feel like it's a book that wants to dare you and then kind of pull the pull the carpet out from underneath you and say that this is a this is something that social media or the internet writ large kind of demands of everything. Um, and that maybe that's um, the novel should be a texture against that a little bit. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think it encourages this real certainty and this, this feeling that it is possible to know. And, and she also, when she's sort of trying to figure out what Felix's deal is, when she discovers that he has this conspiracy theory account, she, she is, is very frustrated because she can't like Google her way into understanding what his deal is more or less. Um, and by the end of the book, I think you, she, she, you know, not to give anything away, but, but she sort of learns a lesson about like being, being overconfident about the things that you can learn online. Um, and I think too, that the, the, the sense of like, there being this overwhelming amount of knowledge in the world, but, but we're all like more or less basically the same, you know, we're basically the way that we were, we have about the same amount of um, uh, wisdom that we, that we would have had pre-internet and maybe even less wisdom uh, in some cases uh, uh, is, is sort of hard pill to swallow. And I think too, in, I think in part by, you know, doing this sort of, post-autofictional, like, tricky narrator was at first just sort of not nervousness, but awareness that, like, being having been online for my adult life and much of it before even really thinking about what I was doing. So, so I don't have a lot of control over what I would have posted on Facebook or whatever when I was 18 or 19 because I just, you know, wasn't thinking about it um, and sort of feeling empowered to sort of take that assumption that someone might have if they know me from the internet and sort of destabilize it and make it so that they can't make an assumption about me. Right. Um, but yeah, I think in general, so much criticism is very personal now, Book criticism is very personal and novel criticism in particular. Um, and I, I understand, I understand the impulse as well. I'm not, you know, one of a traditionalist who says, you know, like that, I don't think that the author is dead. Unfortunately, I think that's extremely, it's impossible. Um, and increasingly, I think, you know, you're always going to be Googling the author. And if the author has no social media presence, that says something about them as well. Um, and you, you, it's just that, you know, the internet, that this is where we are. This is how it is. And it, it you know, I also think in the same way, like, I'm going to look back maybe in 20 years at all these zoom interviews that I've done that are online forever and resent that they're there, but they're there, they're there. So I, we have to deal with it in some way. Yeah. Hard to take back those answers <laughs> you hadn't given. Yeah. Um, that leads me to, um, uh, I, I don't, I don't want to, you know, end our conversation and not talk about the style of the book, which I think has, uh, I think of as kind of um, wonderfully digressive in, you know, it changes moods and modes and tempos a lot. Um, and it seems to be in conversation with a lot of different kinds of contemporary literature. Um, and one of those um, kind of those styles and forms is that 
fragmentary form that we're very familiar now with, um, you know, Jenny Ophel being maybe the, the best practitioner of it, where you've got a lot of white space um, and very punchy, axiomatic um, paragraphs. And, and then you sort of are meant to kind of fill in the, the tendons and the connective tissue in between. So there's a section of, of the book where you're you're kind of doing this while winking at the fact that it is not for you. Um, yeah. And the narrator says, you know, as an aside, maybe if I wrote like this, I would understand them better. Um, and, you know, the first section of the novel is not this at all and operates in qualities that are lyrical and, and, and realist and perhaps more a traditional novel. So, um, what was your thinking as you kind of um, moved through these very stylistic registers? Well, I think um, the, so the frat, I mean, I wrote that in 2017 and it's still very popular. And now you're seeing, I don't know if you've noticed this as well, but now I'm seeing like novels that basically you could cut the fragment out and just put it all together and it would be the fluid narrative. But for some reason, the author and or the publisher has decided to put um, section breaks between all the, all the paragraphs, and I find that very interesting. Um, and I I have very cynical views about why why that is and why it's so popular. And the it, the fact is, it's extremely easy to write that way, and it's extremely easy to read. Um, and it gives you a real feeling of satisfaction because you can just like write one, and then also you can just read a whole book in like two hours and you're like, oh, I just read this whole book. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to pay attention to it because it's designed for like a fractured attention span. And obviously there have been many, many fragmented books for all time. Um, but there's, there is definitely a reason why it's trendy now. Um, just as there's a reason that, you know, skinny jeans are not popular now. Uh, and, and the, the, no, I, I missed the, the whole shift. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think that part, you know, to a certain extent, there's like these things that are happening and I'm watching them happen and I'm seeing, you know, I'm noticing like over and over fragmented books, fragmented books. And I'm like, do these people know something that I don't know? Like, it seems very, you know, I'm like, I don't like it. Well, like, why are so many people doing it? And so part of it is, I think, I was interested in seeing how it worked and, and if, it, if it would work out or, or what it was like and if I could learn something from it by doing it. Um, but also I think the way that the book tran transitions from um, like a more fluid, long, longer form uh, style to this fragmented thing is, is important, was important to me at the time at least. Uh, and it's the narrator is walking around doing her babysitting job listening to a, po a podcast, an author interview. Um, and the, the woman on the podcast is saying that she had to write in fragments because she's a mother and she didn't have a lot of time to write, um, you know, longer, you know, a longer form thing. And that she thinks that the fragmented form is particularly feminine. And so that's where the narrator sort of gets the idea. She sort of just gets the idea randomly. It doesn't have this like greater meaning. She's like, Oh, I heard this on a podcast and now it's going in my book. Um, and so those are sort of the things that I was thinking about. But I think, too, for the sort of iterative quality of the dates, the section also is like where the narrator is going on all of her okay, keep the dates. It's very useful because it, it you know, it's repetitive. You can show different versions or, or variations on a the theme very well um, while also putting a narrative in there. 
something, I don't know. Did you watch that talk with Patricia Lockwood? Because she said something really interesting that I wish that I had asked her about, but we were like, you know, doing our banter for so long that I didn't get to ask her. But she said, she was like, yeah, it's weird that when you write these fragments, like you still want to have narrative threads in them. She's talking about me. And I, you know, I was like, well, all of the fragmented novels have narrative threads in them. They're just chopped up. Her book has a narrative thread as, as well. And I, I, th- I think that the mind, particularly when you're reading a novel, like creates a narrative thread out of fragments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm, I'm just like torn up that I didn't press her on that anymore because I'm, I was wondering, you know, wonder like, I was like, damn, is there still something I don't understand about the fragments? Um, I don't know. Yeah. And I, you know, for me, form is, is such a kind of, um, a particular means by which we put our ideas into language. And so it should necessarily be different for everyone. And so replicating um, forms becomes old and, and boring and and you, you want kind of innovation in them because you want to you want to f- be able to have your ideas mean differently than someone else's and just adopting that same form, they end up maybe echoing the kind of meaning or just feeling flat, which I think is a lot of the kind of attempts at that form. Um, but it's, you know, I, I appreciate in particular novels that um, are uh, not kind of wed to one formal register and can be in a lot of places. But I, but I completely agree that um, our, our brain when we're reading novels is making connective threads. And that doesn't really have to do with whether there's space on the page or not. You give someone a gap in the plot or a gap in a in a timeline, and their brain is going to fill it in, right. and that's a remarkable thing about about reading um, that that we make story even when there's absences. So maybe the on one hand the fragmentary piece of it is interesting because it's a um, it's what novels are doing no matter what. Um, right. But on the other hand, maybe we don't need it, as you say. Maybe we can just pop them all together and have a, have a paragraph. Yeah. And I also think too, I, I said this, I said this to her, but I think too, when I'm on Twitter, I am creating narrative um, over time when I'm observing the same people say certain things in their voice over a period of time, I'm, I'm ascribing to them a character and I'm sort of often, I think, determining things about what's happening in their lives and um, uh, a good example now is like the people who are doing vaccine selfies. It's like, then you sort of are like, why is that person getting a vaccine? And then you want to figure out why that person's getting a vaccine, but it happens, you know, in all sorts of, in all, all sorts of ways. I think when people, you, I at least, and this is because I'm addicted to Twitter, but I at least notice when people start acting differently, um, if they're people that I followed for years or, or whatever. So I think that that's very natural. Um, and I think it would be, even more crazy making if you were just watching you saw each individual piece of information as as if divorce as a truly divorced from all others 
Yeah, I think that would um, I think that would make you um, have a breakdown. <laughs> um, this is another question having to do with um, your relationship to various kind of trends in contemporary fiction, and that's uh, I, I liked a description um, of you in a in a review of faked accounts that said you were allergic to the moral obviousness of most contemporary fiction. And fake accounts, I think, very um, deliberately and certainly avoids moralizing as its narrator kind of dips in and out of these fabricated identities. And that's not treated as either good or bad or admirable or vulgar. Um, um, so do, how do you find the place of the contemporary novel in relation to questions of social or political morality? Well, I think there's this sort of so when you're a novelist, you're making you're you're making it. It's not. It's not I, I don't like this idea that like the inspiration flows through you and you must just write whatever you have to write. Like you're doing it for a reason. So I think that what's particularly disappointing about contemporary novelists who are moralizing is that they create these very easy moral situations, right? So they create situations that are not sort of beset by um, like complication they're they're beset by a very straightforward sort of suffering that makes it very easy to determine who's on the right side and who's on the wrong side and i think that mm -hmm. in life that only really happens in like extreme news stories a lot of the time and i think that if we're talking about the sort of day-to-day -day interactions that we have with people that we know or or you know the sort of interactions that become the focus of a novel um, they're very rarely morally straightforward and it's very rare that people sort of do the right thing or do the wrong thing. And I think that there are lots of reasons for that kind of pressure. I think that there's a tendency among readers to want, if the protagonist is not a good person, then the protagonist to sort of learn a moral lesson and grow through, through the course of the book or, or for the protagonist to sort of like, do you know to, to be someone that is relatable or or you know what have you but whenever I read a book like that I just think this is not realistic this is not realistic and if it were realistic different things would be happening and the protagonist would be sort of totally different um and I think that sort of um like this sort of wishful thinking in the construction of plot and character is something that that bothers me and and you could say definitely and i think lots of people have said this that it comes from this pressure from social media which is to say that if you're seen as as um on the wrong side morally then you are going to be you know mocked offline or criticized or everybody's going to yell at you for that um and obviously you know no nobody nobody wants that um but actually no, i mean i i go to for uncertainty. I mean, yeah. for me, uncertainty of a novel, its characters, uncertainty with their their place and, and meaning in the world is is much more interesting to me than than certainty. Um, and there's a lot of certainty in in social media. And I so I, I like I like the novels to diverge from yeah, and I think too that there's this pressure for everybody to sort of feel it used to, the the you know the saying used to be that online everybody feels like a celebrity, but I think in certain circles, certainly the sort of media literary sphere that I run in, the pressure and actually among celebrities as well, the pressure is to be a politician and to sort of act like 
you um, have it. All, you have your statement. You have your your brand is are is your set of beliefs. Like what where you fall on the political spectrum. And often you see people now, in particular, I think the pandemic is exacerbating all these things. But you see people sort of giving statements about statements that they've given in the past, right? And these are just like random grad students or or whatever. You know, they're not they're not they're not like we don't care what you're, you know, I, theoretically, I don't care what some random person's statement on some event of the day is, but there's a sense that like someone does care and I need to make a statement about it. Um, and certainly novelists fall into this category as well, where they sort of feel like they need to be example, exemplary figures or role models or something in the, in the community. And I, I just think that that's, um, no good <laughs> not to use a, a social media framework but i think it's bad <laughs> um we have a, a a really good question from kasha um who asks it seems to me like we're in this moment where millennial culture is kind of the dominant culture maybe it just seems that way to me because i'm a millennial but at the same time the online world is arguably now increasingly the domain of gen z I'm wondering if you have thoughts on the differences between millennials and Gen Z, if there's a clash of generations, if they're significantly different in their ways of being in the digital world. I mean, I think they probably must be different. I think that the thing about millennials is that we are the last sort of generation that had any sort of understanding of, of life before the internet, which is to say like until we were, you know, eight, nine, 10, 12 or whatever, we probably didn't have the internet or if we did, it was a, a really sort of low key AOL dial up kind of situation. Um, and our, and our parents didn't, you know, weren't using it at all. So that makes us have this sort of, I think there's this feeling among millennials that there's something, there's something wrong, but we don't necessarily have the vocabulary to say like what it is. Um, and certainly I don't want to, you know, be like a, a total pessimist and to say that the whole world is ruined and the, that, you know, technology is destroying the earth because we've gone through this with all, all sort of technological advances, which is there's always some horrible backlash against the radio or cinema or, you know, whatever the technology is of the day. Um, but, and, and of course, one day the internet will just seem, you know, sort of seem very anodyne and there will be something else that the future generation is freaked out about. Um, Gen Z though, I mean, I think they're still, they're still, they're only just now graduating from college. Right. So how, what's the oldest Gen Z would be like, what, 24, 23? I don't know. Um, I think so. I'm not positive. They seem, you know, they seem fine to me so far. I don't really see the TikTok thing is a bit disturbing. I, I think with my students, um, the the major differential I see has to do with privacy, which mm -hmm. is a which is an underlying theme to fake accounts, actually, is the questions of privacy and and you know who gets to see into um, what you think of as like the truest nature of of who you are, who gets mm -hmm. access to that. But I think there's a sense that Gen Z has um, no sense that there's a difference between um, a private self and a and a public internet self. That's um, and I'm sure that's not true for everyone, but it 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 feels very true in in the way they respond to um, questions about what they're posting um, and what the afterlives of those things will be. Well, there was this. 
um, very interesting interview with Kendall Jenner a few years ago. I don't know if she's technically Gen Z. She might be to cut. She might be cussed, but I don't know how old she is. But um, she, the I think it was a GQ maybe, and the writer was was talking to her, and they they had a witness. This was when Keeping Up with the Kardashians was being filmed, and they had witnessed like one of the sisters driving around drunkenly in a golf cart. <laughs> and then the producers of the show wanted to shoot that. Again. <laughs> okay. So the, someone had been driving around drunk in a golf cart and the producers wanted to shoot it again. So Kendall Jenner had to like redo a bunch of takes of this ostensibly real occurrence on reality TV. We all know that reality TV is, is staged and fake or whatever, but the reporter asked Kendall Jenner what she thought about if, if she thought it was dishonest to have to do all these takes of something that had ostensibly was supposed to be real. And Kendall Jenner like could not understand the question. Like she did not understand that he was saying that there's something weird about doing this over and over for the camera because you're purporting to do it live and sort of authentically. And she did not, she could not get that there was a distinction. So I think that that is probably that, that makes sense, right? Like that there, there unfortunately is not necessarily meaningful distinction. And part of, I think what's interesting to me is this sort of like the way the internet operates and, and the sort of feelings it produces are, are related to possibilities, not necessarily like actualities. Right. So right now there's always this debate about cancel culture and, and it's because people are afraid of getting canceled uh, or, and having their sort of livelihoods destroyed by the internet. But there have not been that many examples of this actually happening, but there's this understanding that all the tools are there and it could happen, right? And so I think, you know, if you're outside, you know, during the pandemic without, without wearing a mask, someone could take your picture and put you on the internet, right? And there are all these sorts of things like the possibilities that it opens and the sort of ease with which we can imagine the worst thing taking place um, I wonder if the, that will just become extremely normal, <laughs> extremely normal. Uh, and Love. yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, um, the question about like private lives and the, the ways in which our mistakes can become these kind of like open public wounds. What's interesting in fake accounts is like that Felix is un unbothered by that, I think, in a way, um, and that maybe there's a there's a, a state that's coming for us in which we are, um, you know, no longer bothered by this sense of a transition between kind of um, private and public mistakes and errors that are aired um, publicly as grievances. I hope not, um, but it, it seems possible. Yeah, and I mean, I think too, he has this sort of nihilistic acceptance of it, right? That she she wants, she's like trapped in the one to have hope I think in some way and he just totally acts as if there's no barrier and that's what you know he's going to do his thing to the, to the best of his ability using the tools that the internet has provided him um which you, you know it's not it doesn't end up it's not that successful of a thing that he's doing but he does seem much more um uh settled in the way of life than she does in the end. Yeah. And I, I'll just say that I think of novels as, 
as that barrier in a way between those things, in part because of the the way that time slows down when you're engaging a, a novel in in a kind of I think um, an anti reaction to the way that time is so sped up and has no barriers and hurdles to the way there's all these things kind of um, mishmash together. Um, we have another question from Jen, who says, I'm so excited to read your book. I was wondering how you think the representation of dialogue in contemporary fiction has been impacted by internet culture. That's a great or how has it impacted how you represent dialogue? Um, I, I would like to hear your thoughts on this as well. I think that there tends to be more dialogue. I read this, I read this quote, there's like a Jonathan Franzen quote somewhere where he says that nobody skips dialogue and everyone likes to read dialogue. And I really disagree with that. Uh, I hate reading dialogue and I always want, I always have to make myself pay attention to it because I tend to skip it. There's not a lot of dialogue in my book. Um, And I don't know though, if it comes from the internet, Uh, I think you can probably like relate the presentation of dialogue to this fragmentary trend, but also I think there's a real um, desire to turn novels into screenplays. And I think that you can see that in the amount of dialogue that's in the book. And of course, novelists have always written screenplays. Novels have always been adapted from film. I, you know, I don't necessarily have, I don't have a problem with that generally, but I think there's this like preemptive, like I want this novel to become a movie attitude um, among a lot of people that makes dialogue, uh, you know, makes dialogue sort of more important. I also hate when there's dialogue that doesn't sound like how people talk and I really hate it for me of a novel if it sounds it's done yeah 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 um and so I you know I think that happens often and I really just I don't know what do you think about dialogue in contemporary novels I, I think well one thing you just see that it kind of in a way recede it will either recedes just into the body of the text un un kind of um demarcated by quote marks and things like that and there's a sense that it is undifferentiated from internal monologue which i think is is quite interesting um or it dialogue is it like it's just you know the broken line dialogue um you know, in its most extremis. And those two things seem to be happening pretty, um, pretty readily. I'm not exactly sure what that um, has to do with the internet necessarily, um, but I am interested in it. Yeah. And I think too, when I was thinking about it, I, my book is narrated from a very, you know, from a very particular first person and I, she's kind of untrustworthy, but she, she's not totally unreliable, but she, but she, is relaying, she's very self-conscious of telling you the story. So I don't have a lot of dialogue because I want her to be your only sort of route into the the narrative. And so you have her relaying things people have told her in her own voice. Um, And I also had a lot of trouble like deciding when I was going to mark off quotes and when I wasn't, you know, when I was going to not do that. Um, and I don't know that I, 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 I just have to do it a bunch of different ways, um, without a sort of, um, overarching system for it, uh, which I hope is fine. (laughs) 
And and I think now there's just the sense that there's freedom for dialogue to exist, however, mm-hmm. um, which is actually, I think, much truer to how we don't have this kind of sense of, oh, now now it's time for the speaking part of, of yeah. life. It You know, we, we talk, we stop talking, we interact in, in different ways, in different yes. voice. And those different voices are, I think, well um, captured in, in fake accounts. Um, I am uh, attentive to the time because it's it's Friday night, um, and I'm so uh, I feel really lucky to have gotten to chat with you, Lauren. And I hope people are going to grab up the last copies that Buffalo Street Books has so they can they can dig in. Um, I know it's number one right now at McNally Jackson, um, another incredible bookstore, and so it's going to be hard to get. So get it from Buffalo Street Books before it um, disappears for a while until the second big printing. But thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you so much for your great questions. It was really great to talk to you. And thanks to Buffalo Street Books as well, my local bookstore. Yeah. Thank you all. That was a great conversation. Um, As I said at the beginning, this is going to be recorded and available, um, hopefully not to Lauren's sugar in years down the road, Um, for a while yet. Um, And then it will also be available as a a podcast. fairly soon. So Thank thanks you. Everyone. Thanks Have so much. Bye. Okay.